Back empowers you to get it together with a single digital wallet. Use Back to aggregate, convert, send, and spend digital assets like crypto, loyalty and rewards points, and gift cards. Get started by downloading the Back app today and treat your digital assets just like cash. And I also want to give a shout out to Kraken. With Kraken, the cryptocurrency exchange, you can instantly buy and sell over 50 of the most popular cryptocurrencies or even earn additional rewards through their industry leading staking service. Payouts are twice a week and you can earn up to 20% each year. Visit Kraken.com now to learn more. Exodus is one of the most loved crypto apps due to its sleek design and easy to use exchange feature. Secure and manage over 130 cryptocurrencies from your computer or phone. No account registration is required. Download Exodus at exodus.com and you're ready to go. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning into The Scoop. I hope you've been getting some sleep this week. I've been trying to, that's for sure. It's been a wild ride for the market and the digital asset space of the last week, tearing upwards from lows of 30,000 to 40, back down to 30, then to, I haven't checked in a little while, maybe our, our guest, Martin Green, co-founder of Cambrian Asset Management might know. 37.5. 37.5, he says. I'm going to take his word for it because he's an investor in this market. He's This is his second time on the show. So you know he's going to have some good stuff to say. Martin, honestly, let's, let's figure out a way to start this thing. I mean, it seems like the same old story, right? Liquidations, cascading liquidations, offshore venues, people getting a little uh, ahead of their skis, so to speak, and then institutions buying the dip, it looks like. And then there's some Chinese government anxieties that have been sprinkled in, so to speak. What's your, what's your sort of um, prognostication of the market right now? Yeah, I think, I think you hit it on the, on the head. It's, it's sort of nothing we haven't seen before. A lot of the same factors driving the liquidations and the reversals from what was a really, really strong the start to the year. Um, there are a couple of things that are different this this time, and you mentioned the, the the institutions as a part of it. But I I think the other part is I think this asset class is now large enough that it's sort of it's past the sort of risk threshold for for many many types of investors. And I think that has some consequences for for the way the market trades. You mentioned risk. Um... When I first woke up, I was going through my email and I noticed this note from JP Morgan and their sort of take on the market right now as it stands is that we're definitely not at a point of capitulation. And this is their words, not mine. The magnitude of the correction in Bitcoin has likely been amplified by a sharp deterioration in liquidity conditions, which we kind of touched upon. When we see these drawdowns on the weekend, this is this is now my words, there's not a lot of market makers on screen. So clearly when you have either upswings or, or downswings, they're amplified. But the second thing that they said, which is a bit concerning, is that there remains significant risk of further de-risking, given continued decay and the sort of way they measure momentum in the market. Do you sort of see that as, as being the case that there's there's more room for this sort of um, 
there's clearly more room for capitulation, but um, which way are we going to go with that context in mind? That's a trillion dollar question, Frank. Uh, it's a good one. Uh, I definitely don't think, I don't subscribe to the notion that, uh, that just because you've seen the, a lot of delevering and uh, the funding rates are negative, that, that that doesn't mean we can't go lower. You know, clearly the risks are probably different than they were 30 to 60 days ago, but there are lots of positive feedback loops in digital currencies because for the vast majority of them don't trade on sort of a, a mean reverting valuation measure. In other words, it's not like when the PE multiple gets really, really low, you've got a lot of buyers that are value investors that just step in and, uh, and turn the market around. So without that factor, you get sort of a lot of positive feedback loops. What can has gone down often, if it doesn't revert, fails to come back, there's a, another wave of, of capitulation. And, um, and so that, that very well may happen again. And I think it's really just important for people to understand that like calling the bottom is often a very dangerous thing. I mean, that's the way we trade. We don't, we don't call bottoms. That's just not the, the way we trade. Mm -hmm. Kind of like a, not a game you want to be in with this market. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I think it, it depends on how you're sizing things. Obviously, um, when things that you believe have a long term, you know, value that's 10 or in some cases, 100 times larger than, than the current price. You know, I think it's, it's a very re responsible strategy to dollar cost average, which means when you get something that you think is on sale, you just add to it. So I think if you have that type of time horizon, it's not a bad idea to to be allocating additional capital at, the, at this level. So I'm kind of saying things that are somewhat in somewhat contradiction to one another, which is yes, there there's the possibility that we we have another leg down, but also for investors who have a really long time horizon, this this is probably well, it's certainly better to add at this level than it was, you know, ten or twenty thousand dollars higher. So um, Totally yeah, agree. So, but that's the that's the nature of markets, right? You've got a lot of different actors with different time horizons, different risk levels. That's what makes a market. I think you're a hundred percent spot on, and sort of like the way you're grappling with the question is similar to the way I was grappling with writing about the state of the market yesterday, right? Because you, I saw, and and the traders that I spoke to saw this dichotomy between bearish activity and derivatives, anxieties out of China, low weekend liquidity, counterbalance with like this massive just, you know, amount of dry powder in the stablecoin market. USDC went above 20 billion in supply. And then, and I, I'm sure you can speak to this, the amount of venture capital money sitting on the sidelines. When you have something like a billion dollars that A16Z has to deploy in crypto, mm -hmm. you're sort of you know, looking at the charts and you see just how brutal it is. And then you also see against the backdrop, these other factors that kind of bring you to this point where you're, you know, it's difficult to answer the question of up or down. Yeah. No, no one in the short term is going to be able to correctly time the market, uh, you know, with great, great certainty. So yeah, no, I think you're, you're exactly right. That's a great characterization of it. And for most most investors, 
this is as painful as this type of volatility has been and the uncertainty about what might happen in the short term is it's um it's the only way that you get an asset that has the long-term capital appreciation that bitcoin eth and some of the other assets have you you're not able to earn 100% annualized returns or even anywhere close to that 50 plus percent annualized returns without assuming risks that other people are not willing to assume because if those risks weren't there it would already be fully priced in and you wouldn't have that sort of forward uh, return profile so the assumption of risk is is how you are able to realize good returns but it's a, it's particularly painful <laughs> painful when you're in the midst of you know paying into that equation <laughs> for most people they should not try to time the market they should accept the fact that the volatility is the is the table stakes for for long-term capital appreciation. I know that part of what makes the firm different to an extent is that you are leveraging various types of data sets and historical data. When you think about the market and how it looked um, in March 2020, similar type of situation in yep. terms of the intensity of the drawdown, how did they look different? I think on the numbers, they're very similar for the reasons you mentioned before. I think it's hard to frankly identify the major differences between then and now. They may only be, they may only be evident in, with the benefit of hindsight, frankly, sure. as to what happens from here. I think, um, yeah, so I would struggle to sort of contrast what happened last March with, with what this so is. So then we can sort of unpack how they're very similar. Um, we kind of hit on some of the topics that sort of make them similar. Um, yeah. But then it ra that raises a follow-up question, which is, when do we break out of these these cycles of intense offshore product leverage that translate into these cascading liquidations, mm -hmm. despite what, you know, and maybe we're biased here because, you know, our, our careers are tied to the success of this space, but a seemingly bullish backdrop. Yeah. When does it end? Um, well, the simplest answer is it, it ends when the, the marginal seller gets overwhelmed by the marginal buyer, um, <laughs> which explains absolutely nothing. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's true, but it doesn't tell you anything. And so, I mean, that's one of the quandaries in investing is things that look expensive can get more expensive. Things that look cheap or oversold can get more oversold. Timing is really, really difficult to predict. You know, I think a lot of people were calling the bottom last week, you know, there were these very uh, people licking their wounds, I, I think, and, and but saying they had dry powder, that this was a great buying opportunity. And then you had another, what, 20, 30% leg down uh, mm -hmm. again. So, um, and as we all know, you know, you, you start with a certain amount of capital, if you're down 50%, so 100 goes to 50, then the markets come back 50%, you're not back to where you started. Mm -mm. You know, you're, you're down 25%. You went from 100 to 50 and then up to 75. So you're down 25. And so I think it's very, if another one of those happens, it's difficult to get the conviction. Um, maybe you just don't have the dry powder. It's most, most people, as I said, should just should not be attempting active management. I think the, I think that's, it's inevitable that what you are seeing in the market this year is more attempts with more professional investors to do active management of crypto by necessity. And what I mean by that is the asset 
class is large enough and it is become either a core, a more core position in people's portfolios, you know, it's it, the, that they have to actively risk manage it, or it's being adopted by investors who look at everything liquid with the perspective of risk management. They're unwilling to just buy something with 80% annualized volatility and just hold no matter what. They have risk limits in place where if, which they ha- where they have to take risk off if the if the asset goes against them. So those elements of more and more investors will be trying to actively risk manage this year versus perhaps last year. That that may be a factor. I think we'll only see that in with the benefit of of hindsight, but I suspect that that's a factor this year. You know, I, I have great respect for folks who think about this from the perspective of just holding no matter what. But I think that the reality is that for some sophisticated investors and for others who have held for a long period of time, where it's it's no longer 1% of their portfolio, it's a huge proportion of their portfolio, they do not have the, the, the ability or the desire to just hold no matter what. And so they will attempt to risk manage and that can create selling pressure that in a positive feedback loop for, uh, you know, when, when some others are selling, then you get your risk limit hit and you have to sell no matter what. And it might not just be the people in the overseas exchanges, you know, that are levered to the hilt doing that. It might be, it might be an institutional investor that's just trimming. You made a really fun point. Well, it was an astute point, but it's fun because it reminded me of a tweet that I saw, which is crypto trades or crypto has been trading like all the people that hold crypto have 100% of their net worth in crypto, yeah, which I think speaks to exactly what you're talking about here. To a certain extent, it does. I think, you know, you, you know, there's Kahneman and Traversky won a Nobel, well, Kahneman won a Nobel Prize for research on a lot of psychological insights into the way people deal with, um, with risk or behavioral fallacies one of which is loss aversion, where losses are felt very, very intensely. And I think people's reactions to price movements, uh, people are often predictably irrational, no matter what underlying asset you're talking about. They they have sort of a consistent way of being irrational about about price movements in certain cases. And uh, it's, it's certainly something that, that we've seen for years. You've been hitting on the word risk management a bit. Um, let's walk maybe the audience through the lens of a professional investment firm. How does risk management change when you're going through an event or a series of events like the past week or so? What does it look like from your end? Yep. So I'll start with the answer that risk management doesn't start in the time of crisis when people are running for the exits. It's too late at that point. If you back up, how do we think about risk management in the context of this asset class, we, we take the following sort of premise first and foremost, which is that over the course of a long enough period of time, you're probably from a point to point, in other words, holding it passively, is going to be an extraordinary long-term compounding or capital appreciation. You know, you might be getting 50 plus percent annualized returns, or over the course of many years, you might be getting a 10x return. But along the way, you might have periods of huge upside volatility where there's a 50% move up in in a month, or you might have a 50% drawdown. 
And so I'm, I'm kind of starting from the foundational perspective. Now, what we do and, and say, okay, so we want most of the upside moves. We want to avoid most of the downside moves. So our strategy was essentially developed with the notion of we want to compound capital in the neighborhood of the compounding of the underlying asset. Maybe sometimes we can do better. And we, with certain assets, we've done a lot better. And then other assets, we'd like to kind of get as close as we can. You know, if Bitcoin's an 80% compounder over many years, we'd, we'd like to get to that level of compounding. On the other hand, we want to ensure that at all times, the path along the way that we're insulating against large drawdown moves. Because investing is kind of one of those path dependent activities, meaning the point to point duration, you don't teleport to your future self with your portfolio, you have to endure the path. And you have to be able to stay on the path. And so for many investors, if you think about stuff like Amazon, you know, assets like Amazon or Apple, along a, a very long time horizon, they've been extraordinary compounders, very few investors have actually done that well, because most of them couldn't afford to stay in during these drawdowns. And so what we're trying to do is essentially insulate capital for two reasons. One is at any given point in time, no investor wants to wake up and find out that 50% of what they thought they had yesterday is now, is now there. And so we want to cushion the majority of those downsides. But the other thing is it allows you to just have conviction in, in something and stay in for the for the compounding. And then there's a third benefit, which is if you can avoid a 50% drop drawdown, you have a lot better chance of compounding at a very high rate. Because if you suffered a 50% drawdown, you've got to have a 100% return from there to get back to where you were before. And so if you could avoid those drawdowns, that's the foundational element to generating really good returns. So that's kind of the way we think about it. So then you sort of say, well, what tools are available to you and we systematize everything. You know, we've got all the data coming in. We don't use it all yet, but we we collect about north of 25 million data points per hour in our systems. And we've got, if the trades are going against us, we're, we've got hard risk limits so that we limit our losses in the event that we're wrong. Uh, and we're not trying to decide what to do in those moments of panic. We've It's already program the system will do it at two in the morning on a Sunday we don't we don't intervene because we don't want to introduce human error into the equation so that's kind of the way we think about both the goal and the, and the execution one thing that like I feel like over the past few weeks couldn't have been programmed and, and maybe I'm wrong but it's just something that I've been thinking about like you can look at you know, volumes or, um, you know, we have a slew of data on our dashboard ranging from people visiting various Wikipedia pages to exchange websites. Maybe we can go into some of the data points that you look at that make up your secret sauce. But what about what's been going on in the news and these social media accounts? Like you see, and I haven't seen this since back in, you know, 2017, just responding to you know, I hate the word fake news because of its, um, you yeah. know, sort of its origination. But, but at the end of the day, this is, and I hate FUD because I think it's trite, but like, you know, it, yep. it, it's nonsense. Let's just call it nonsense. 
from these large Twitter accounts, we don't know what's behind them, but you see a tweet from, you know, one of these Twitter accounts about mm -hmm. how X whale is offloading X thousand amount of Bitcoin and then the market reacts. Or you have Elon Musk popping off about whatever it is that day. Yep. And the yep. market responds. I feel like this is this is a new reality. How do you sort of plug that into your your sort of systems? It's a great question. Um, I'm not sure that it's a new reality. Uh, I think that news information cascades have happened in crypto for long periods of time. Uh, the, for example, the China crackdown. I mean, that's a that's a that's a that's something that's happened. China's banned Bitcoin so many times. I've lost count how many times they've done it, for example. And it, and it happens in the equity markets as well. You know, you can be trundling along and we don't trade equities, but, you, you know, those who do in a quantitative fashion, you can't necessarily anticipate some of these things, which are essentially, you know, exogenous to the data that you're, that you're getting. You have to react in real time and by then it might be too late. Mm -hmm. So that's a non-answer, but the, the thing that I would say, often the news itself, like Elon's tweet, will have would have a different consequence in equity. In a, in a, in a, no, 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 in crypto. Oh. oh, in crypto. In a different situation. And so you can light a match in the middle of my driveway and nothing will happen. You can mm -hmm. drop it on the floor and nothing will happen. You take that match drop it on the floor of the open space that's, you know, maybe half a kilometer, half a mile or so from my house, monstrous difference in the consequences, still the same match. Elon mm. lit a match, but the market conditions into which he lit that match were the difference. And our models are designed to understand the market conditions. And we take risk off when the market conditions are such where any match, Elon's match or any other match, is going is going to light a fire. Why do you think the market was positioned or situated as such that the Elon match made a difference, whereas it might not have a few weeks ago? Was it just the sheer amount of liquidity yeah, there or something? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. it's a little bit more complicated than this, but what I'm about to say, but you well, get as complicated as possible. Um, so I think you had a couple of conditions, but you had a flattening out of the marginal difference between spot buyers and spot sellers. So in other words, it had become mm -hmm. a lot more even handed. It wasn't sort of like there was this huge accumulation of demand of spot and that's re that's rising and prices are rising with lots of more volume, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that was sort of one piece of the puzzle. You had leverage building in the system as well. So any move down then creates a cascading of selling pressure. I mean, that's the simplest explanation. And, and that, that's, those are the conditions you mentioned at the, at the sort of beginning of our conversation. You, you, you called those, those conditions. And, and so Elon's tweet at, different, at a different point in time where there was not that much leverage. There was building institutional spot volume. Martin, doesn't that make the crypto market for someone who's maybe listening, who isn't a believer, so to speak, make it just seem so finicky? 
maybe the equity markets are becoming more like this th these days with sort of random, you know, social media accounts um, upcharging or, um, you know, fueling the upward price trajectory of random stocks like GameStop. So maybe, you know, maybe it's not a crypto specific phenomenon, yeah. but uh, to, to a degree, it, it does raise this question of well, what type of store of value and, and this is me playing devil's advocate to an extent, but what type of store of value can be completely degraded by uh, an, an eclectic CEO's um, Twitter? Oh, I, I think the answer to that is just simply the time horizon. I mean, just if can you imagine what the volatility would look like in early stage tech companies if their stocks were shares were traded? 24-7 globally, and we're talking about Series A, seed yeah. to Series A stage tech companies, they would be extraordinarily volatile. Um, there, would be, yeah. there would be, oh, did you hear they lost this customer? They, they won that customer, and the thing just gets way ahead of itself. And then at that yeah. point in time, there's, that's when the, there's all this flammable fuel, and if someone says something negative it just the multiples collapse and then I, I just think it's a function of you've got the market essentially assessing not a terminal value but a, a value to these assets in 10 15 20 years take bitcoin for example that could be a, a multiple of the value of of gold at some point in time in the far distant future if there's a broad base debasement of the dollar. So small changes in whether or not that's more likely or less likely can be felt in the present, you know, because it's a huge lever. You've got Ethereum, which is a few hundred billion in essentially market cap that some people believe could power, you know, trillions of dollars of value in decentralized finance. And that some t at some point in the future, the owners of Ethereum would get some portion of that in terms of yield, the, the likelihood of that happening versus not happening. You're talking about huge levers into the future of difference in value between something that's worth trillions of dollars or zero. The slight changes in the probability or slight changes in the mix of people who believe that versus are losing faith or just fund flows coming in because these markets are really small. I view that as not, it doesn't give you any information value as to the ultimate, the way things will ultimately play out. It's just, it's the stuff you have to just deal with if you're looking at, at things that could be um, transformational over a decade, but in the moment they're, they're really early in their adopt, potential adoption cycle. And so, and they're liquid. Such a good way of putting it. Backed is the digital wallet of the future, empowering you to manage all of your digital assets from a single place. Backed puts the power in your hands to get your crypto, loyalty and rewards points and gift cards together to choose how you want to use them. Treat your digital assets just like cash and convert, send or spend them using Backed. Get started today and get it together with Backed. Available for download now in the App Store and Google Play Store. 
And I also want to take a moment to thank Kraken, the cryptocurrency exchange. For the last 10 years, Kraken has been known as one of the best platforms for trading crypto online. Whether it's your first trade or your 100th, Kraken has the tools to help you hit your financial goals in crypto. With Kraken, you can instantly buy and sell over 50 of the most popular cryptocurrencies or earn additional rewards through their industry-leading staking service. Payouts are twice a week and you can earn up to 20% each year. Visit Kraken.com now to learn more. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Exodus. Exodus is one of the most loved crypto apps due to its sleek design and easy to use exchange feature. Secure and manage over 130 cryptocurrencies from your computer or phone and interactive charts let you view the price history of a specific asset and your portfolio's performance over time. Sync your wallet across multiple devices to access your funds from anywhere. And maybe the best part, Exodus is integrated with Trezor Hardware Wallet, making advanced security easy for everyone. Download Exodus at exodus.com today. I want to sort of shift gears to, I don't know. I don't know if anyone will find this interesting, but like it's something I've been thinking about. We still see less on the DeFi side relative to last March, but, you know, the exchange outages and, you know, I, I mean, like, I couldn't even check the the state of my portfolio on, on on my platform of choice because of the issues that were, were, were going on. How does a, a professional sort of investment firm like yours manage exchanges going down? And how are you sort of able to top up on margin calls or like get sort of around, I don't know what the, yeah, yeah you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Uh, first, um, we, we don't have margin calls. We don't use sure. leverage. Uh, we, we, we think things are exciting enough as they are without adding leverage to the puzzle. Um, <laughs> um, there's a couple of answers to your question and it's a, and they are real risks. So you have to go in with the notion that your counterparties are doing their best, but they are also various stages of startups you're not you're not facing a morgan stanley a jp morgan uh, a goldman sachs as a prime broker mm -hmm. uh, as good as and as well managed and well-intentioned as as these firms are they're they're also building out their 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 systems their risk management uh, approach etc cetera, etc cetera. um so so what that means is you cannot build a formula one car that requires millimeters of tolerance in terms of the road surface yeah um you you are building a racing machine for sure but it's so ladies and gentlemen pretty sure uh martin's from canada that's why we're getting the um <laughs> the, the difference in uh in metric yes here. that's all right uh you have you have to build as if you're you've got long you have to have off-road suspension because you're you're doing the baja uh off-road you know rally you're you're not <laughs> you know so you you have to so uh, that all fun aside when our execution algorithms which do the trading you know we have the ability to to react to you know if not microsecond within low single digit millisecond in response to changes with our counterparties but we've had to do a lot of defensive coding over the years to ensure that price feeds that are mistaken or or the order books out of sequence or all of these things happen now especially in basically times of stress when you need them to be the most accurate those are the times when often 
that information is is in a race condition or and then that's even before you get to the point where the, the order book might be offline or something like that so there's a lot of defensive coding that we need to do to ensure that things failures in the terrain essentially or errors or whatever in the terrain don't don't tip the car over um so that's one mm. thing uh, the other is obviously having multiple counterparties and then there's another thing that we've developed more recently which is using derivatives to not to sell risk but to hedge as well and so we're buying let's say puts at different points in time and uh systematically from a quantitative point of view but then if the market is in a race condition and prices are plummeting and exchanges are offline we've already got the hedge on and so that mm. can protect us in the event you know these very very unusual events that may have maybe mean reverting but they may be quite consequential so th- there's a variety of things that you have to do as a to, to insulate yourself against um loss of capital um yeah well i want to be respectful of your time if we think about you know what who knows what we can expect for the next few days but you know we kind of took the week off last week to let everybody kind of sift through the craziness um so this will probably go out tomorrow tuesday what do you think traders and investors and market participants should be thinking about as they get through the rest of this week? You, you know, they say that good judgment comes from experience and experience sometimes comes from bad judgment. So I think that, <laughs> I think that you know, we're all in a state of learning, uh, hopefully. So I have a lot of sympathy with folks because I've been there in the past who, who lost money over the last week. Um, you know, earlier in my career, I had too much risk on, wasn't aware of the downside, you know, possibilities and, and suffered. And that caused me to really, really think through how best to do risk management. And so, you know, it's tough in that moment. But if you have a long term commitment to learning, and you have a supportive group around you, I think, you know, you can, you can come back from from suffering a bad experience. Um, but I think the other part is just to, to sort of step back and look at what the secular kind of tailwinds to the to the industry are. And there are a lot of them. And you've talked yourself about many of them. And, and, uh, and I think they're pretty well known at this point. So I think the long term outlook is, is really, really positive. Real quick, closer, boilerplate, top biggest medium to long term tailwind. Um, it's the same one I think we've, we've been in for a year, which is the macro forces mean that institutions are under allocated to this space and that takes a while. And so institutional ownership of crypto assets has been something that everybody's been talking about for years. We will be continuing to talk about it for years because it's, uh, it's the biggest factor. I think within that, you've, we've seen the volumes and liquidity in Ethereum have been, um, you know, we used to run much more capital allocated to Bitcoin than in Ethereum uh, in the past. And then our model essentially looked at the, you know, constantly looks at the data and reweighted. Ethereum is, has been a much larger position than it used to be. And it's sort of equal weight to Bitcoin for the last, you know, several weeks. And I think that probably continues. Ethereum is, is quite under-owned compared to Bitcoin. So that might be another factor. So why do you think that that's the case? 
I think it's just a, a matter of, uh, of essentially two things. One, one is starting a year ago, macro investors essentially seized, like Paul Tudor Jones, starting with Paul Tudor Jones in May of last year, seized upon Bitcoin as digital gold, right? So that was just a, the scarcity versus the US dollar, et cetera, et cetera. And then that a lot of other investors started thinking the same way and you saw corporates uh, announce, uh, et cetera, et cetera. The, the next piece of the puzzle is there are a lot of institutional investors who don't in, invest in gold. They don't view it as a quote productive asset. It's not a yield bearing gold, isn't a yield bearing cash bearing asset and, and neither is Bitcoin. It has all sorts of great qualities to it, but one thing it does not have is yield. If you own it, you don't enjoy a, a dividend or, or some sort of yield. There are a lot of investors who will look at digital assets such as Ethereum if they're successful in EIP 1559 and ETH 2.0 as mm -hmm. having the scarcity value that they're looking at. And one might debate you know, the security of it versus Bitcoin, and I don't want to get into that, but there will be enough institutional investors who look at that and think, oh, that's an asset that I also think might be an inflation hedge, but it also is an asset that I could own as a yield-bearing asset. It's a because the trans a lot of the transaction quote gas fees, some of them will go to proof of stake uh, holders of Ethereum. There's a lot of institutional investors for which that's an easier thing to understand than digital gold, and you have not seen big institutional investors come out and say, Ethereum is what we're allocating. Like you, you haven't seen Tiger yeah. Global say, we're taking a, we're putting 5% of the portfolio in Ethereum because of XYZ. Understood. Well, we shall see. Good, good news for the um, ETH bulls listening in. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> Martin Green uh, at Cambrian. Thank you so much for joining the show. This was great. We'll have you again. You're you're going to be our our go-to market collapse. <laughs> Let's talk to somebody about it, guys. So hopefully that doesn't bring too much uh, dreariness to your podcast thinking. Talk to you soon. Always nice to see you. Always nice to chat with you. Thanks so much. Cheers.